It's always an honor to have the opportunity to stand here in front of you guys. Um, I don't ever take it lightly. Um, I do want to be sure that I um, have something that I think will benefit the body of Christ. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk about, and I had a, I always try to come up with some kind of title if I have something to say, and um, I tried to think of what I was going to call it. I kind of settled on the life in the after. I started to call it Ever After. I tried to call it the after world, and I landed on life in the after. So fairy tales often end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. So this usually follows um, the defeat of a sinister villain, or after the hero has accomplished some Herculean ta you know, feat. Um, but that's not really real life, is it? So I want to talk to you the concept about the concept of after these things or following these things, um, life in the after, if you will. So life brings us seminal events, some good and some bad. Events are periods of time by which you mark time. You'll look back and say, well, it was before or after mom died. It was before or after the cancer diagnosis. Is before or after I got this job, or before the baby, or before we moved, or before the divorce, or after the divorce, or what happened. We mark time by events that happened. COVID's going to be a, a pivotal moment in the sociology of the world, right? Because it changed everything. Can you remember the pre-COVID world when you didn't own a mask? And they said, well, just you know, wrap a scarf around your face or something because you had to cover your face, but nobody owned a mask. These little cottage industries popped up all over with people making masks. And, and before um, you knew what social distancing was, and when the word quarantine was still relegated to third world countries or to history books, we didn't talk about ever being quarantined. And now we have all this new stuff because COVID came. And it was a pivotal moment in the history of mankind, in modern history anyway. But I want to think tonight about, about events or periods of time that have the ability to impact us, not just on a physical or a social level, but on a spiritual level. Things that happen that have the opportunity or the ability to impact us in our relationship with the Lord. So this thought's been with me for a while, probably since before the church, before the new building. And when I was teaching a session over in the 2236 class on a Wednesday night, and I taught a series on Esther. and. Um, you know, in the Bible, there are some stories that give you all the details. And then you have other periods that they don't, they don't give you any detail. It's just like skips over big parts of the Bible. And, and I've always known that it, that's for a reason. I always thought God puts every detail in the Bible for a reason. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So when you talk about the, the story of Esther, chapter one begins, it lays all the foundation, and then you have all the familiar story of Esther, how she's taken to the king's palace, and she's prepped for her audience with the king, and all that happens, and she becomes queen, and then Haman is this dastardly man that has this hate of the of the Jews and her relationship with Mordecai and the feud between Mordecai and Haman. And all that happens through the book of Esther until you get to chapter eight. 
In chapter 8, Queen Esther begs for the life of her people, and the king stretches out the scepter. And in verse 7, it says, Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. And that's where we end the story, right? Because that's the end of the story of Esther. And when I was teaching it over there, I was like feeling guilty because did you know there are two and a half chapters in Esther after that? Two and a half more chapters in the life of Esther after that verse. And, and I struggled with stopping the lesson there because I kept thinking there's, there's a reason that those two and a half chapters are there. There's a reason why we have that, and I didn't feel like I had, I still don't know that I have the answer, but I didn't feel like I had done justice to the entire book of Esther to leave out those two and a half chapters. So what those two and a half chapters tell is the story of Mordecai and his legacy. It's not about Esther, it's about Mordecai and how he ensured that the proclamation that delivered the Jews there in Persia also reached the outer reaches of the kingdom and how that he made sure that that proclamation reached way out into the region. Everyone was saved by the proclamation, not just those in his immediate family, not just those around him. And I want you to notice in chapter nine, verse seven, it says this, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. Now, why not take the spoil? Why did Haman, why did Mordecai not take the spoil? Because it wasn't about gaining riches. It was about delivering the Jews. And Mordecai, I think, didn't feel like he earned or deserved that. That was not his calling. His calling was to deliver the Jews. And Mordecai has a lasting legacy a legacy of a wise man, his story ends like it began, that of a wise and godly man. Now I wanna talk a little bit about Gideon. So Gideon, you're familiar with his story as well, right? A lot of familiar stories tonight. Judges chapter eight, Gideon's grinding his grain in secret and hiding so that the Midianites won't come and steal it from him. And the angel appears and gives him instructions and then there's the fleeces and all the story that goes through there and then he Finally is convinced and he calls up an army and he narrows the army down by the drinking the water and letting them go home if they're afraid. And all this happens and they gather that night around the Midianites and they blow the trumpets and they break the pitchers and they shout unto the Lord and they are delivered. The scripture says that they ran and cried and fled. There are a hundred verses after that, that tell the story of the life and the after of this event in the life of Gideon. And I want to read you just a few of them. This is in Judges chapter 8, not long after this happens, it's in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Gideon. Midian. You, you're the one that saved us, you are our hero, we want you to be our king. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, 
I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And the Bible said that they were happy, happy to give him that. And they gave him all the earrings and it measured up to 1,700 shekels of gold. 1,700 shekels of gold. And I can get really deep into details if I let myself because I like details. <laughs> But I, I did a little bit of research in this, and I, I thought I'm spending too much time on this. So trying to figure out how much money that was, because I was really curious. How much money in today's money is that 1,700 shekels of gold? And it was like 75 pounds of gold, which I think is like $1.6 million in gold, plus all the other ornaments and all the, 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 the purple cloth and all the stuff that they had in the spoil. And, and Gideon took all that, and he made this ephod, he set it up, and the Bible says it became a snare to him into his house. And if you read the story of the legacy of Gideon, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's an awful story. It has treachery and murder and, and fighting in his family. And, and I think about that. So the, the, the balance here is Mordecai and Gideon, both people called, both people that were part of a miraculous delivery both people that were the vessel of the Lord to bring about his will or his purpose in their generation. But how do they respond to that? And I think of the verse in Isaiah 20, 42, 8 that says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. It's my humble opinion, just my opinion, that sometimes we are more vulnerable to failure in times of great blessing rather than in times of great need. And so we run the risk of saying, I was the one that God used to bring about that great move or that great whatever, and, and we, if, we're not, if, if people aren't careful, take the, the approach of, I earned that, or I deserved that, or it's because I worked really hard, or it's because I, I studied, or because I practiced, or because I did all these things, and that's why it happened, and so I deserve what happened from that. But really, God is good, and all good comes from him, and all glory belongs to him. Life in the after after a period of time, not just one single event, but a period of time, how do we live our life in the time after the event? Now I want to turn your mind to a story in 2 Samuel. So this is the time that Absalom had won over the hearts of the people from David. So he, he was very intentional in his subterfuge. He sat in the gates, and he turned, the Bible says he turned the hearts of the people. He would come out of meeting with David, and he would say, well, what did David say? Well, I think that you were right. I think David should have given you what you wanted. And over time, he won the hearts of the people into the fact that David flees Jerusalem with his faithful servants and his mighty men. And he's setting up camp when someone comes up to him in 2 Samuel 15, 31. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, and you can, you can understand the desperation in his voice, says that, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
So why is there such a focus on Ahithophel? Why does David fear Ahithophel? And part of that is revealed in 2 Samuel 16, 23, when it says this, and the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. He was gifted, he was shrewd, he was wise, he was incredibly gifted in understanding um, human behavior, tactics of war, and when Ahithophel gave you advice, it was solid. It was as if he had inquired at the oracle of God. That was what was said of Ahithophel's wisdom. And when David found out that Ahithophel was one of the conspirators, and he is with Absalom giving him advice, he said, O oh Lord. And then he called one of his mighty men to him, Hushai, and he said, Hushai, you have to go back to Jerusalem and you have to defeat the advice of Ahithophel. So your only job is to convince Absalom to do the opposite of whatever Ahithophel says. If Ahithophel says go north, you say go south. If he says attack in the day, you say attack in the night. Whatever he says, we don't know what he's gonna say, but whatever he says, you advise the opposite, and you talk Absalom into it. So Hushai goes to Jerusalem, and he said, you know, Absalom's like, why are you here? He said, my allegiance is to the office. Who's ever king, that's who I'm, who I'm loyal to. So David was king, I was loyal to him, but now you're king, I'm loyal to you, and Absalom lets him right in, and Hushai is successful. He listens to Ahithophel, he gives the very opposite advice, to what Ahithophel gives, and Absalom listens to Hushai. David is victorious, and Ahithophel is defeated. Absalom is defeated. In 2 Samuel 17, 23 says this, and when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Does that not seem like a drastic thing to do because someone wouldn't take your advice? For when, I mean, I'm thinking, hey, my reputation's better than ever because you didn't take my advice and you failed. My reputation is stellar. I've still never been wrong. If you'd listened to me, you'd be okay. But the story, the, what's behind that, and I, and I got this several years ago, probably many years ago, I heard a lesson on this that said, what killed Ahithophel? And the story is, is that Ahithophel was killed by bitterness because when you look at the genealogy, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. He is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And the story in this is, is that ever since David's sin with Bathsheba, it has been eating at him. And he has been festering over that. And he has been laying wait and thinking and plotting and he's a wise man and he's waiting for his opportunity because someday I'm gonna get him back. Someday I'm gonna pay him back for what he did with my granddaughter. So another kind of seminal moment here. We talked about great blessing. This is dealing with betrayal or living in the wake of the sinful actions of others. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with betrayal 
are suffering because of others' sinful behavior. So I want you to think about Ahithophel. Now I want you to think about Joseph. Joseph, the victim of repeated betrayal, right? First betrayed by his brothers. Then he was betrayed by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. He was forgotten by the butler. And when his opportunity came before his brothers, he was in a place of supreme power, right? Absolute power. His brothers were completely at his mercy. Completely at his mercy. And what did, David, what did, what did Joseph say? He said, it was all God's plan. It was all in God's plan. Two different ways of dealing with betrayal. And I thought about this because this is hard. If you've ever been in a situation where you have been betrayed or you have been caught up in the wake of others' sin, that's hard because your thought is, I didn't do anything wrong. Why? I, I didn't sow it. Why do I have to reap it? What, why am I caught up in this? And I don't think that that means that it happens and you just blink your eyes and you're in this happy place forever. I hope it happens that way, but more often than not, you find yourself mad and angry and with lots of questions and you have to intentionally continue to turn your head toward the Lord and say, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live in these verses in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, so familiar, but such incredibly powerful verses. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. He's going to direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. Don't take it upon yourself to try to make it right, to plot revenge, to be that person, but be like Joseph. Trust in the Lord. Lord, I know you have a plan. I don't know why. I don't know what this is all about. I'm going to put my confidence in you. I'm not going to trust in my own thinking and my own understanding, but I'm going to allow you to direct my paths. I'm going to fear the Lord and depart from evil. Two things. We talked about great blessing. We talked about betrayal, living in the wake of other sinful actions. Now I want to talk for just a minute about um, King Saul. Before he was crowned king, the scripture describes him as head and shoulders above every other man. He was a strapping specimen of a guy. He was humble and he was modest. When the time came for him to be in the spotlight at his coronation, he was hiding because he didn't want to be in the spotlight. He was hiding. But fast forward two years, and King Saul has amassed an army. He's won a lot of victories, and he's very popular with the people. He's very popular with the people. People like him. They say he's great, he's amazing, he's handsome, he's powerful. He's King Saul. He is... Wow, King Saul, here he comes. And we see the first crack in his commitment to Samuel and the ways of God. He's waiting at Gilgal for Samuel to come. Samuel's supposed to be there in seven days. And in 1 Samuel 13, 8, it says, And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. 
But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Scattered from him, he's losing his audience. The people are not hanging around him. They're not going to wait. He's losing his audience. And so Samuel, King Saul, offers the sacrifice instead of Samuel. And the Bible says that he had just got done in Samuel arise, which tells me it's still the seventh day, right? So it's same day. In the same day, he's there on time. It's just not on King Saul's time. So he, Saul, offered the sacrifice, which was a duty reserved only for Samuel. And when Samuel asked him what happened, his excuse was, um, do I have this one on the... I don't think I do. It says that they that um, because the people, I feared the people. I feared the people. You were late, and the people were scattered. That's what he said. I waited. It was seven days. You were supposed to be here, and I waited, and the people were scattered, and I didn't want to lose my audience. And then there's a story you're real familiar with, and that's the story of the Midianites, where Saul is given very specific instructions. And when you read this, I'm not going to belabor the point, but when you read this in 1 Samuel, Samuel is very specific about why you are to destroy the Amalekites completely, the story of the Amalekites. You're supposed to destroy them completely, all the livestock, all the people, no one's left. And the reason is because this is... This is a direct result of when the children of Israel were coming through the wilderness and the actions that the Amalekites took against the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God said then, I will destroy them. This is coming back on you. And this was going to be the fulfillment of that. There was a direct commandment from God to Saul, this is how you will carry out my word. And of course, we know the story. He goes, he goes back, and, and when he comes back, he brings back all the best of the livestock, and he brings back the king. And Samuel... The Lord speaks to Samuel before he ever gets there, and he says he did not. He rejected the commandment of the Lord, is what the scripture says. He rejected the commandment of the Lord. And because you've rejected my commandment, I reject you from being king. And so when Saul, Saul when Samuel gets there, this is a setting for two very familiar verses that have some very familiar phrases in them. One is, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's because Samuel says... I mean, I'm getting my words checked that. King Saul says that I brought all these livestock back here so I could make you a sacrifice. He said, obedience is better than sacrifice. And then he said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So Samuel delivers the judgment of the Lord. You have rejected the commandment of the Lord. I have also rejected you from being king. And I want to read you two verses regarding Saul's response. And this is what I started to read a while ago. 1 Samuel 15, 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It's not my fault. Yes, I sinned, but I was scared of the people, and I listened to their voice. They talked me into it. And the next one is in 1530. After Samuel says, God's not going to repent, this is going to happen. Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Okay, I know I've sinned, 
but I don't want to look bad in front of the people. So if you'll just come with me and pretend everything's okay, and we're going to go over here and offer sacrifices like everything's good, and then the people will never know what I've done, and I'll be able to go on with my life. I mean, I know I sinned, but what I really care about is what people think of me. What I really care about is what people think about me. So we're talking about here um, those moments or periods of time in our life when we fail. When we fail, when we royally mess up. We fail the commandment of God. We don't do what we should do. Um, and the contrast to this one is David. Remember the Bathsheba incident, which was Ahithophel's granddaughter? So David's sin, we all know, was the sin of, of adultery with Bathsheba and then facilitating the death of her husband, which was murder. And after this all happened, and the child dies, you can read in um, Psalms chapter 51, and I've read it, I know you guys have too, many, many, many times. It's the prayer of David, after his prayer of repentance after this episode with, um, with Bathsheba. And it's very powerful. I think, this is strictly my opinion, I think this may be why David's called the man after God's own heart. Maybe it's his praise, might be. But I've always felt like it was David's response to failure that God loved. God is about redemption. He's about saving people that have done wrong. And David's response to failure was just a beautiful example of what we should be. His response to judgment. He starts off in Psalm 51 with, Have mercy upon me, O God. Verse 4, he says, Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. I did it. There's no hint of it being anybody else's fault or him being influenced by anybody else. If she hadn't been on the head rooftop, I would have never seen her. None of that. I sinned. I only am responsible for my sin. And then in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, that is what I care about. Whatever happens, I can't lose your presence. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And he goes on to say, I know you're not looking for sacrifice. If you wanted sacrifice, I would give it to you. I'd give you sacrifices on end. But what you're really looking for is a sacrifice of a broken heart, a broken and a contrite spirit, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Whatever happens, I know there's reaping, and I know there will be consequences, and I accept all the responsibility for that. Just restore my relationship with you. Restore my relationship with you. I wonder what would have happened in the life of Saul if when judgment came to him, if he had said, you're right, I sinned, and I understand I don't get to be king. I understand the kingdom's gone from me, and that, that's okay, take the kingdom. But I need to make it right between me and God. I need forgiveness. I need to move on. I know that there's reaping. I know that there are consequences. 
but I got to fix this between me and God. Because you see, this was early in King Saul's reign, probably maybe five years in, maybe seven. Do you know how long King Saul reigned? 40 years. So the kingdom wasn't ripped from him the next day. It was ripped from his lineage. His children never became king. And I just think about that. I think, what if Saul's, what, what, what a different life in the after if Saul's response had been, okay, I get it, I sinned, take the kingdom. I, that's right, I, it, it was all, all on me. But restore my relationship. But instead, the after is different. Defining moments. When we've sinned, we've broken trust, we've fallen to temptation. David gives us the perfect example. Take responsibility and know that there's likely reaping and consequence but I'm going to restore my relationship with the Lord, but I'm going to let him guide me and lead me through all the stuff that is to come. Have you ever heard, anybody in here ever heard of E plus R equals O? Nobody? Well, I'm going to give you a revelatory thing tonight here. This is great with parenting. <laughs> e plus R equals O. Event plus response equals outcome. Event plus response equals outcome. So the event has happened. I can't go back in time and change that. If it was my fault or your fault or their fault, if it was fair, if it wasn't fair, whatever happened, the event has happened. We're looking in past tense. The event has happened. Any, any impact, any input I have on the outcome of this event is my response to it. That's where my control is. This happened to me, this plus my response equals the outcome. E plus R equals O. Powerful stuff, isn't it? It's very scripturally based. Very scripturally based. Um, but it's a succinct way of looking at it. If when these things happen, the good, the bad, the ugly, when they happen, how do I respond to that? That is what gives me the outcome. And I wanna talk just for a minute about the life's not fair stuff. Why me? Why my child? Why not a miracle for me? Does God hear me? Couldn't he have prevented this, or couldn't he have healed, or couldn't he have had delivered? Why me? Why did I not get what I prayed for? Why? Life is just not fair. It's just not fair. And if you've never lived there yet, I pray you never do, but it seems like we all get there sooner or later. So I want to talk to you a minute about James and John. James and John, brothers. So you hardly find one mentioned without the other throughout the Gospels, right? Peter and Andrew were brothers too, but you don't hear them talked about like you do James and John. James and John were in business together when Jesus called them to be disciples. They were the sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of thunder, right? They were buds. They were together. They were together a lot. And Peter and James and John cre created that or made up that inner circle of Jesus' disciples, they were the three that was at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Those three, Peter, James, and John. And then you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Throughout the whole ministry of Jesus, you find Peter, James, and John in that inner circle. 
and then at the Garden of Gethsemane, those are the three that are taken further into the garden with Jesus, participants in the most integral parts of his ministry. And then Jesus is resurrected, ascends back into heaven, and we get into the book of Acts. And in chapter two, you have the day of Pentecost. In chapter three, the lame man's at the gate beautiful. In chapter seven, you have the stoning of Stephen. In chapter eight, Philip and the great revival in Samaria. In chapter nine, Saul of Tarsus is converted. In chapter 10, Cornelius is brought to the kingdom. And then you get to chapter 12, verse one. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James with a sword. Have you ever thought about John? I think a lot about John when I read that. This is his brother. This is his brother that he has been so close to in, in ministry. He's part of the inner circle. He's the top three. This is James. Why would this happen? And if John got by that, the next part of it is what really would make him struggle. Because it says when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded and took Peter as well. But guess what happened to Peter? God sent an angel for Peter. Now, if you were John, would you be a little confused? Did they not? I mean, the church prayed for Peter. Do you think they prayed for John? I mean, for James? I know for one thing, when Peter got out of prison, he knew exactly where the prayer meeting was. He knew exactly where the prayer meeting was. He went right there. Why does my brother lose his head and God sends an angel for Peter? Why does that happen? Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about John having any doubts. That's just my opinion. And it's something the Lord blessed me with when my dad passed. And I don't remember how I got this thought, but I remember I struggled when my dad died of cancer at 65. He was a good man, just getting started in his retirement. And I didn't understand why we prayed so hard and God... And I know other people that were not near as good a person as my dad that got healed. <laughs> you know, that's my opinion. Why? Why does that happen? And I read this and I thought about this and I thought John had to have had a, just a minute of why James? Why James? But I do know this, 20 years after this event is when John wrote the Gospel of John. When you read the Gospel of John, it says, John the Beloved, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved the disciple that Jesus loved. He never got past understanding that Jesus loved him, no matter what happened. And if you read in the end of, in 1 John, that he wrote as well, chapter four, verses seven and eight, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. God is love. That's the testimony of someone that lived through something that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. So if I had to wrap up, I would wrap up with this. Um, another very familiar story when the disciples are out on the boat and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and he beckons Peter out of the boat and Peter steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water 
until what happens? He what? He took his eyes off of Jesus and he started looking at the waves and he started sinking. So in all these things that happen to us in life, and we have opportunity to be tripped up, or we have opportunity to be bitter, or we have opportunity to put too much confidence in ourselves, all of these times of life in the after, if we keep our eyes on the Lord, if we keep our confidence in Him, keep our faith centered on Him, then He will surely take us to the happy ever after. God bless you.